Hey, Trumpcast listeners, Virginia Heffernan here. So you're about to hear a short excerpt from today's episode of Trumpcast. It is a teaser. To listen to the full episode, you need to be a Slate Plus member. We've started making one in four Trumpcast episodes available exclusively to Slate Plus members. We hope you'll join Slate Plus to hear the show and to support the work we do here at Slate every day. You get no ads on any of our podcasts, extra content from other Slate shows like Slow Burn and the Slate Political Gab Fest and all kinds of other swag and bonuses and excitement. So sign up now at slate.com slash Trumpcast plus to get every single episode of Trumpcast in full. It's only $35 for the first year. And as always, thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Facebook and Flynn, Flynn book and face. That's what was around the psychedelic news cycle this morning. Facebook, along with its little lethal friend Instagram and Twitter and Google YouTube, is back equivocating and evidently not coming clean to Congress about the extent and insidiousness of the Kremlin-bought disinformation that pervaded it in the Kremlin's effort to elect Trump in 2016. Among the highlights of a Senate Intelligence Committee report released yesterday is evidence that Black Americans were among the most exploited by the Russian troll farm IRA, which was run by Putin's chef. The disinformation dug in like bedbugs that had bred with termites. And it was designed to exploit societal fractures, says the cybersecurity firm New Knowledge. It was designed to erode our trust in media entities and the information environment, in government, and in each other. And then there's Mike Flynn. Honestly, I don't know why people don't despise Flynn more. I mean, he's like maybe slightly better looking than some of the rest of them. Anyway, Trump's former national security advisor is the one who chanted lock her up most vehemently during the Trump campaign. And he's the one who seemed to bear Obama the biggest grudge for firing him from the Defense Intelligence Agency, where he was reportedly according to Colin Powell, an abusive asshole. He also used what his subordinates called flinfacts. Flinfacts. Lies. He ranted about how al-Qaeda was still thriving when it wasn't, and in general, he'd eaten of the insane root. He literally said Obama couldn't handle the truth. And when he got forced out, he started, as one does, as Giuliani did, to consult with his nutso son for Russian mobby companies and then for the Turks. Flynn decided Erdogan was just a great guy. And Erdogan's foe, a cleric named Gulan, was not a great guy. So Flynn and his son agreed to kidnap Gulan from Gulan's Pennsylvania redoubt. And in general, Flynn broke very, very bad. And he continued his streak, working for Trump, when Ivanka insisted the haggard, wild-eyed general come aboard the campaign. Working for Trump during the transition, fortunately, was right in Flynn's skill set because it was also working for the Kremlin. Flynn had some chats with the Russian ambassador, Sergei Kislyak, about policy, some while his hated Obama was still president. And then Flynn lied about those conversations to the FBI. And today, having reportedly given up lots of information to Robert Mueller's team, Flynn's getting sentenced for that. But he's not getting sentenced for more serious stuff like what to some truly looks like treason. He was working for the Turks and the Russians while he purported to be working for America. Now, some people, including the venerable former United States attorney for the Southern District of New York, that's Preet Bharara, have questioned 
whether Mueller gave Flynn too sweet a deal. Barrara doubting Mueller? For people playing fantasy prosecutor at home, this is a weird turn of events. So we got Facebook and Flynn, and last in Trump tragic times is the fact that the S&P is down 4.8% for the year, so it's looking overall like Wall Street's worst year since 2008. And if I remember right, that was not a banner year. The Dow and S&P are also down 7% this month on pace for their worst December since the Great Depression. Now, I'd never blame a president for our stupid neurotic stock market, but since our president has long taken credit for the market, I'm going to lay this disaster, like all other disasters, at his feet. My guest today is Seth Abramson. He's the author of Proof of Collusion, and he's here again for round two. The Oracle of New Hampshire, mostly beloved and sometimes scorned on Twitter, is back to talk about the weeds of the weeds in the Trump-Russia probe. This time, our focus is the Miss Universe pageant in Moscow 2013, where Trump allegedly did something with urine. I can never remember those details. He tried also to get his big rock candy tower built in Moscow. The Miss You 2013 is kind of the grassy knoll and the book depository combined. And the holy spirit of that crazy Miss Universe weekend is a man named Aras Agalarov. Now, you don't remember that one? Putin's builder? No worries. Seth knows a lot about him. I'll be back with Seth in just a minute. But first, one tweet. We go deep into a tweet. And what if we applied the logic of this Twitter masterpiece of Trump's to fix journalism? Never in the history of our country has the press been more dishonest than it is today. Stories that should be good are bad. Stories that should be bad are horrible. Many stories, like the real story on Russia, Clinton, and the DNC, seldom get reported. Too bad. Good morning, everyone. I want to start this editorial meeting with some feedback. We are a local newspaper, and we owe it to our readers to do the best we can. And I am noticing some trends in the stories that are coming in, and I want to identify them in the hopes that we can right this ship. Stories that should be good are bad. And a lot of the stories that should be bad are horrible. And many stories, you know, like, for example, the real story on Russia, Clinton, and the DNC, that's seldom getting reported. So... I just want to open it up to you guys and say, what do you need from me to fix this? Okay, I think I'm not totally clear on what you're talking about, Bob. Denise, your story on the Route 52 cleanup? Yeah. It should have been good. It was trying to be good. It was bad. Okay, do you mean the words I chose or the actual reporting? Was it unclear? It was bad. It should have been good. Does that make sense? Not really. Daniel, you're reporting on the local election that I'm following. Mm -hmm. That probably should have been bad, but it was horrible. Bob, I think we might be getting hung up on the words a little. Do you mean that the content is not written well, or do you mean that the tone is off? Or what do you mean by good and bad? Or like the story is bad. Like, oh, that's a sad story about that kid that died. We generally publish two kinds of stories, Mm -hmm. good ones and bad ones. 
are you able to see when I assign a story if it should be good or it should be bad? So what's the story that you assigned me that you expected to be good? The orphanage reconstruction. You wanted that to be a good story. But it was bad, wasn't it? This is a great example. Well, that's good news, but it's, do you mean I did a bad job with it? I just feel like the words good and bad are so simple. I don't know if that's really clear direction. Come on. You know that should have been a good story. Mm-hmm. You assigned the story for me to go cover the sinkhole? Yeah. Now, the content of that story is obviously bad. Dan? Yeah. That should have been a good story. That should have been a good story. It was bad. What did you want to be good about it? I wanted to read it and think it was good. Like, do you mean that you want it to be good news or well-written news? You guys, this is journalism 101. Stories are either good or bad. Can I ask a clarifying question? Yes, what? Go ahead. Do you think sinkholes are good or bad? Wow. Can I ask you a double clarify? Sure. Why are we not telling the story that is seldom told about Russia Clinton and the DNC? Bob, I think you might think you're a good editor, but actually you're bad. Joining me on the line is Seth Abramson, the author of Proof of Collusion, for part two of our scintillating chat. Let's get to the Miss Universe, Moscow Miss Universe pageant. Come on. That's where we get the steel dossier. We get the escapades with urine, alleged escapades with urine. And we get some of the fruits of the longtime Kremlin-Trump flirtation over that 40 hours or whatever that Trump was in Moscow. Tell us about that. So Donald Trump goes to Moscow in early November 2013 for the Miss Universe pageant, and he goes there both talking to everyone he meets and everyone he spends time with there about politics and being talked to by people, Russian oligarchs that he's with in Moscow about politics. He is making very clear that he opposes Obama's policies toward Russia. Uh, He is getting very positive response from the businessmen that he is speaking to particularly because of his proposed foreign policy. We should be very clear that when he went in November 2013 to Moscow, he had already decided to run for president. Roger Stone tells us repeatedly on air, in books, in podcasts, and everywhere else that Donald Trump told him he was going to run for president on January 1st of 2013. So Donald Trump is talking about politics when he goes to Moscow advisedly. And what happens in Moscow is that he signs a letter of intent with Vladimir Putin's top Kremlin real estate developer, Arasa Galarov, and he's able to sign that deal because Vladimir Putin assists in securing money from Spurbank to fund the project. Vladimir Putin personally sends to the pageant his top permits man, the guy who you need to talk to if you want to build in Moscow. And of course, he had already effectively sent Arasa Galarov, who just 10 days earlier, he had given the highest civilian award that the Kremlin can give by his own hand to the man that Donald Trump was about to go in business with and had frankly already conceived of doing a deal with prior to going to Russia. So he comes out of that with a letter of intent and even more than that, plans for where the site is going to be, what the building will look like, and an assurance that we see reflected in the reactions of the people he spent time with that he is in fact going to run for president. And wouldn't you know it, just two or three weeks after he gets back from Moscow, he's telling New York GOP officials he's going to run for president. So his foreign policy has always been connected to his business deals, and particularly that 2013 Agalarov deal. One of the things you and I have connected on recently is the RNC's culpability in all this. The RNC had such savory characters as its campaign finance chair, one Michael Cohen, Elliot Broidy, and Steve Wynn, the more-than-alleged sexual abuser who is still, I guess, a casino magnate. 
not a savory group of people. But the RNC is also closely connected to, I don't know if you know where I'm going, but closely connected to a group of powerful evangelicals. And they, in turn, are closely connected to Liberty University. Trump leaves his Ritz Moscow stay. Do you remember why he has to leave, why he runs out of Moscow? He has to get back for a funeral, right? Billy Graham's funeral. Yes, that's right. So he's, on the one hand, placating the strippers and the Jeffrey Epsteins of the world, and on the other, sucking up to evangelicals. And even that is part of a broader narrative that we don't talk about nearly enough. The whole Liberty University evangelical element and the way in which it ties to the RNC points toward a larger truth, which is that it's not just that Vladimir Putin wanted to get to Donald Trump and the Trump organization and the Trump family and wield influence over them. He wanted to get to the RNC. He Mm. wanted a more abiding inroad into U.S. politics than simply a single family. And so there's a whole chapter in Proof of Collusion about the ways in which the NRA was used as a conduit, the National Rifle Association used as a conduit between the Kremlin and the top officials, according to emails that are referenced in the book, top officials at the the RNC. And so I think that that's one thing that isn't focused on enough. And I would also say people often don't focus on the even bigger picture of why is Vladimir Putin doing this in the first place? Why is he using evangelicals or the Trumps or the RNC in order to make inroads? And the answer is he wants the collapse of the Western alliance of nations that won World War I, that won World War II, that's keeping us safe right now from a lot of scary people with nuclear weapons. I mean, we have to be able to talk about this in really large terms Even as in proof of collusion, I'm talking about each sentence on a fact by fact basis. Yeah, you're making a really good point that there's a whole RNC piece here. And by the way, it will come back to specifically Elliot Brody and Michael Cohen and Rick Gates, who was the liaison Uh in the RNC in the campaign. All that is going to be on our television screens in 2019. So that's the teaser for today's show. Aren't you tantalized? Don't you want to hear the whole thing? Well, now's your chance. You can sign up now at slate.com slash Trumpcast plus to get every single Trumpcast episode, all of it, no ads. It's only $35 for the first year. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast plus.